um, uh, an, an ethic even without somebody saying somewhere along the way, hey, that's hate speech, or don't be hating. And all of a sudden, disagreement becomes hate because there's no more room for critical thinking. If all of us are stuck on our own to sort of decide, then I have a right to sort of decide because I'm an orphan, you're an orphan, we're all orphans, we're all here on our own. So we just got to decide for ourselves how we live and what's important and what's worth sacrificing for. And if that's the case, then you have no right to tell me anything else. And if you disagree, my goodness, that's hate. The second maybe kind of way to live, and, and by the way, the, the orphan sort of um, relativist is, is, is perhaps an extension of what began in the Enlightenment. In the Enlightenment Europe, you sort of had the beginning of this notion that God may be there, but he's upstairs. Don't bother with God. He's sort of the, the really sickly grandfather who's asleep upstairs, and you just got to stay on the main level and run things. And so... You know, honestly, I, I think you can rethink, you can, there are many ways to tell the story of how even uh, democracies and government theory and all that so, sort of stuff develop. One, one way of saying it, though, is if you believe that God is upstairs and he doesn't really care about what's happening downstairs, then humans have to just figure out the best way to sort of make life work. Uh, and, and without keeping in mind that there really is a ruler or a lord of this world. Which is why, as Christians, by the way, there's no political system that we ought to feel really fully at home within. Because we have this striking claim that makes every ruler nervous, even the democratically elected ruler. And our claim is that Jesus is the real king of the world. But see, that, the extension of, I think, that sort of thinking leads you to this place where I'm on my own, you're on your own, that country's on its own, everybody's on their own, so just kind of leave us alone. Leave us alone. Well, maybe the second kind of approach to life is the slave mindset. This, you would say, is maybe the moralist. And I think America, because of its roots and because of its stories, has deeply embedded moralist trainings. Uh, we sort of have deeply embedded in us that, look, good things happen to good people. Anybody heard that? Um, if you're a football fan, I remember last year after the Broncos played the Patriots and uh, Tim Tebow and Tom Brady greeted each other post-game. I mean, could there be two more opposite guys, right? If you know anything about these guys, you know what I'm talking about. And after the game, after you know, Brady and the Patriots whooped us, he says to Tim, he says, hey man, it's okay, keep it up. Good things happen to good people. He didn't know a few months later he'd be traded. Um, but the moralist in us kind of says, that is how life works, isn't it? That if we try hard and do good, things will work out. It'll be okay. You can get better by trying harder. And the moralist view of God is really something like this. There is a God, but he's not very nice. He's kind of an ogre. <laughs> he's in charge, and, but he's, he's tough, and, and he's, he's exacting, and he's, he's cruel, and, and he's mean. And, and, and really, this God, I mean, there's love, but his love is definitely conditioned by your behavior. So if you behave you'll find God to be loving. But if you don't, look out. Whether we realize it or not, I suspect that most of us, even those of us who call ourselves Christians and have been saved, 
I, I suspect that most of us lean towards one or these other sides. And maybe you Christianize this worldview by, by certain phrases. So if you lean towards kind of the orphan relativist, you say, oh, God doesn't care. He's loving. He doesn't judge. You shouldn't judge either. See, now with Christians, it's not don't hate. It's don't judge. Forgetting that actually Christians are supposed to judge each other's actions, just not each other's intentions. But that's a sermon for another day. And so, so if you slide towards kind of the orphan relativist, you say, well, God is so great. It doesn't really matter. He doesn't really care. It's all good. But if you slide towards the slave or the moralist side, then God for you is, yeah, I mean, I think God's good. But Ben, I really, I, I, I need to pray harder. And when you hear things like Lent, you think, what are the rules? What is it I need to do again? Now, am I allowed to have, what if I had one chocolate chip on accident? I saw a friend, you know, who's giving up milk for Lent and he accidentally had a tea, British style, with steamed milk in it. I thought, you're giving up milk? Come No. See, the moralist in me says, what? That's all you're doing? <laughs> but not, they're, they're, if, you're, if you're a mathematical person and it helps for you to think in terms of grid lines, you could say, all right, two ways to live. That's the relativist and the moralist, the orphan and the slave. And then you would have two other lines that go this way, that you could say there are two great themes in life. Really themes that are common to the human story, common to the human existence. Again, a gross simplification. Okay? There are probably many themes. But work with me this morning, we'll just pick two. One is this, the pursuit of virtue. The pursuit of virtue. The pursuit of virtue is sort of this feeling that we are not what we ought to be. Isn't it interesting that in every culture, in almost, I, I, I suspect, you could test this out, in every culture, in every age, there is this notion that humans as a people are not what we ought to be, that there's some place we're supposed to improve towards and move towards. The old Greeks called this virtue. And you have Aristotelian ethics, this idea of not this nor that, but the golden mean. There's something perfect here in the middle, something we're supposed to strive towards. But really, underlying all that, isn't this the the feeling that we're not yet what we're supposed to be, right? The pursuit of virtue. But the second theme is this idea, the pain of suffering. To say that, you know what, you don't have to live very long in the world before you realize it's painful. There's pain here. Maybe as soon as a baby crying out, saying, hey, hey, like mine is right now. The pain of suffering. This is maybe the feeling that the world is not as it ought to be. So if the pursuit of virtue is driven by the the belief that we are not yet what we ought to be, the pain of suffering is underlying it is this, this sort of nagging suspicion that the world is not the way it ought to be. As much as people try to say, well, there's no this or there's no God or it's all meaningless, why is it that something in us rises up when even a natural disaster happens, or when you hear about horrifying stories of of human trafficking, and and you think, oh, that is not the way it's supposed to be. What is that in you? Maybe you don't yet want to talk about Christ or Christianity, but there's at least something in you that says the world is not right. What happens if you have an orphan mindset and you're thinking about virtue? I think 
the orphan sort of mindset about virtue is, well, the only real virtue is happiness. So whatever makes me happy is what is good. Whatever makes me happy equals what is good. Now, that's not what the Greeks even used to say, but it's certainly what our culture says. Sheryl Crow, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Right? Life is short. Enjoy it. The bottom line is, I'm on my own, so I've got to get my own, therefore leave me the heck alone. The slave and virtue, the slave says this about virtue, okay, okay, yes, there is a way I'm supposed to live. I've got to try harder. I'll be rewarded for what I do. I know some dear and precious people who've grown up in perfectionistic environments where everything has to be done a particular way or else it's not good enough. I know, I've heard stories, I won't give away who, who grew up in a home where they had to use a toothbrush to clean the baseboards every Saturday because if it's not perfect, it's not good enough. What about suffering? What happens when you bring the orphan mentality into the pain of suffering? I think what happens is very quickly you say, see, told you they can't be a God, told you they can't be a good father, because look at this, it's all meaningless. Nobody cares. And yet there's this nagging feeling that this isn't right, but you don't know why you think it's not right, because if there is no God, then it shouldn't matter. It's that struggle of an orphan heart that says, I want to believe that there's such a thing as home and a loving family But my life experience has told me there is no such thing. Therefore, suffering is just meaningless. The slave mentality about suffering is to say, well, okay, I'll tell you what what this is. This is the judgment of God. Gee, we don't ever hear Christians say that in the news when catastrophes happen, do we? Oh my. Then you discover all the moralists That we are not really grace people, we are really deeply, deeply (laughs) guilty moralists who want to explain the world by saying, this is God's judgment. You took prayer out of schools. And underlying that is the belief that if I had done everything correctly, this would not have happened. And if I had followed the law, if I had obeyed, if I had done this right, if I had done it correct, then this would not have happened. And so maybe it's something I've done. Listen, in the hyper-charismatic environment that I was exposed to in Tulsa when I lived there, there were people who, who talked this way about sickness and said, look, if you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. Or if you're not healed, it's because you're not giving more. Now that works out really well, doesn't it? for the guy who's preaching those kinds of sermons, but not for anyone else. And, and there's a big part of me that wants to stand up and call the farce of that, because it's, it's bogus. It's a rigged system to make one person rich and everybody else fearful, living like a slave. See, yeah, listen, you know why the, the, the slave morality, moralistic sort of thinking thrives so much in churches? 
Because anytime there's a company of slaves, it, it only benefits the master. And so the man of God greatly benefits. He can build his empire when he's convinced everyone to be slaves in their moralism. But Jesus, this is part of why Jesus was such a threat to the power brokers of his day. This is why you think, why did the religious leaders have such, such problems with Jesus? Lots of reasons, really. But one of the reasons is because Jesus put, turned the whole system on its head. And he says, listen, guys, this isn't really true. You don't really need to live this way. And all the other people who benefited from being in this place of power said, hey, whoa, whoa, easy there with all this God forgives you talk. This is how we get our money. This is how we get our power. How can you say this and how can you say that and how can you offer healing freely to sinners? What are you doing, Jesus? Jesus told a story. It's his most famous story. And Jesus told a story that very much is about these two kinds of people. It's the story of the prodigal son. Turn with me to Luke 15, verse 11. It's a bit long, but we're going to try to read as much of it as we can. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Incidentally, this sort of request is the kind of request that is tantamount to saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, because all you're good for to me is my inheritance, so would you just give it now? This is the younger son wanting to be free of a father. This is the younger son wanting to live like an orphan. He wouldn't have said that, but really what he wants is free from the shackles of authority, all of the benefits, none of the responsibility. That doesn't sound familiar, does it? Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Imagine this. Wanting to be free, wanting to live on your own, and then all of a sudden realizing it's not such a good thing to be all alone in the world. It's not such a good thing to be by yourself. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. Isn't it true that sometimes the people who slide over into moralism are the people that have been saved out of relativism? Let me say it a different way. Maybe before you came to Christ, you were living however you wanted and doing whatever you wanted and then you got saved but you didn't catch sonship or being a daughter of God, what you caught was, okay, I'm done with relativism, and so now I'm going to move over and be a good moralist. This is what the younger son wants. He says, look, this whole thing of living on my own, figuring out life by myself, living however I want, yeah, I'm done with that. I don't want that. Let me, let me just, but I don't deserve this, so, so let me just be a servant. Can I tell you that this is what so often happens in church? You live, we live out in our, on, our, on our own in the world. And we say, oh yeah, I used to live this wild and crazy party life and then I got saved and now I'm trying to be a good Christian. 
And now I want to do all the right things. And now I just want to be a servant, God. But somewhere in us, we've moved from an orphan to a slave. And never really caught the true grace that is being offered to us. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off. Oh, I love this. (laughs) But while he was still a long way off. Sometimes people say, well, do I have to get my act cleaned up before the Lord will take me? While he was still a long way off. His father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. This is the very speech he had rehearsed. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What was he going to say? Remember, he just rehearsed his speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me one of your hired servants. Does he finish it? He doesn't get to. Why? Because the father interrupts him. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. But this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. There's so much that we could say about this, right? We come to God sort of hoping that maybe we we'll get a little bit of mercy. Maybe we'll just get some forgiveness for our past. Do you know... The phrase, the God of second chances. I'm not a fan of that phrase. Do you know why? Because if something was impossible for you to do the first time, guess what it'll be for you the second time? Impossible. And what about the third time? Still impossible. Anyone have the feeling, bad memories, back to math class at elementary school or junior high, where there was an algebra problem and the teacher was that teacher and you were that student, and they say, hey, would you come up? you know, little Johnny, and work on this algebra problem in front of the class, and you're like, I, I, I don't know how to do this problem. And the teacher says, come on and show us. And you do it, and you're fudging your way through it, and you're like, X divided by Y. Like, I don't even know. This is alphabets, not numbers anymore. <laughs> and you're trying to figure this out. And, and you stand there, and you're like, I, I don't know. And the teacher says, hey, Johnny, I've got great news. I've got good news. Behold, I have good news. What? I'm erasing the board. I've wiped the slate clean. Oh, thank goodness. And the good news is you get a second chance. All of a sudden, you're horrified. You're like, I'm sorry, but that's not good news. The gospel is not a second chance. Because a second chance to do something you've never been able to do is not good news. And I think we are, we are not, we, we haven't done a great job of catching this. But grace isn't a second chance. It was impossible to live this way the first time. It'll be impossible the second time. What we've received is far better than that. The father gives his son a robe, a ring, and shoes. Man, we could talk forever about some of what that maybe talks about. Maybe the robe speaks of covering. And as Christians, we could say, is that justification? Is that being covered over? Being given robes of righteousness? Being given a righteousness that we could never have on our own? Maybe. 
And he's given a ring which sort of speaks of authority. You're not going to be like one of the hired servants. You're going to have authority in the house like a son or a daughter. You're, you're going to have authority here. Here's this back. And shoes. You're going to need shoes. Because, oh, the places you'll go. There is purpose back. There's covering. There's authority. There's purpose. This is what is being offered to us. Not the chance to sort of try again. But the story gets better. Verse 25. Now as the older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother and your father, if you're into underlining, you can underline that, your brother and your father, has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, talked to him, persuaded him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, slaved for you. And I never disobeyed your command. Moralists have a way of exaggerating our good behavior. Yet you never gave me a young goat. You know, those skinny animals that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, does he call him his brother? This son of yours, distance, came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Moralists have a good memory about everyone else's sin. You kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, 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 you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother. The father is always bridging the gap between the people we want to put distance between, isn't he? We're always trying to say, I am this, but they are that. Us versus them. We're good Christians. They're backsliding Christians. We really love Jesus. They don't. Us versus them. And our Father is always trying to close the distance and say, your brother, stop touching me. Every parent, you've got to know this. But this is your brother was, was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. There's a beautiful thing going on in Luke 15. It begins with the parable of the lost sheep, and one out of the hundred sheep is lost, and the shepherd goes after the one and leaves the 99. And then Jesus tells a story about a woman who had ten coins, and so one out of ten was lost. Now, again, if you're a math person, you're loving this morning because you're already doing percentages. One percent, all of a sudden, next story, who was lost? what percentage was lost? 10%. And then he tells a story about two brothers. And we're convinced when you heard the first half of the story that what percentage was lost? 50% because one out of two was lost. Except that in the story of the lost sheep, the shepherd goes out to search for the one. And in the story of the lost coin, the woman turns her house upside down to find the one. And the father leaves his house for both sons. The father leaves his house for the prodigal son while he was still a far way off. But the father also leaves his house to go find the older brother and say, what, what's going on? You think Jesus is maybe trying to 
ease us into the uncomfortable truth that we are all lost. It's easy when it's one out of a hundred, isn't it? It's a pretty good odds you're in the 99. Well, that's not me. And then, you, you know, you start to squirm a little when he says one out of ten. You're like, well, I'm pretty sure that's not me. And then you hear the prodigal son. You're like, I know that's not me. I'm a church kid. The worst I did was scribble in my mom's Bible. I did, I did that, yeah. But that was not the worst I did. And then all of a sudden you realize, wait, 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 what? Both sons are lost? So you're saying all of us are in trouble. All of us are outside the house, whether you're the relativist or the moralist. Because it's easy as Christians to point the finger at the world and say, oh, what a bunch of relativists. In fact, I was leading you that way this morning. I set you up. Because the point is not to wag your finger at the relativists. The point is to say, behold the Father's love. Behold the love of God. God has come to us. The Father left the house. There's lots of commentators that describe the reasons maybe for why this Father left the house because a wealthy land-owning man would not run. This is sort of bad form. Got sort of, plus it's messy. You've got to gather up your robe and tuck it in. and It's just kind of it's weird. You know? It's inappropriate. One of the thoughts the commentator suggested was maybe it's because the elders typically stand at the city gates looking for the rebellious outcast ready to stone them. And maybe the father, when he saw his son a long way off, thought, "Uh uh-oh, they're going to get to him. They're going to get to him. They're going to stone him. But I I can't let him take the penalty of this. I will. And maybe it's the father running to the son to quickly put his robe on him and his ring on him to say, nobody else touch him, he's mine. And isn't this what God does for us? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were helpless, while we called God our enemies, while we were shaking our fists at God, while we deserved nothing but death, God says, I'm coming, I'm coming I'm coming because you're helpless on your own and you, you wanted to live like an orphan and you became an orphan. You became outside the house and you wanted to be a slave, but I won't let you be a slave because I'm coming to you and I'll take it. I'll take the weight of it. Put it on me. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll cover you with myself. And because of Jesus, Orphans and slaves become sons and daughters. Because of Jesus, orphans and slaves become sons and daughters. Church, you don't have to believe the lie that you're on your own. You don't have to believe the lie that you're only good enough if you're good enough. That you're only loved if you behave. Home, this thing we've been longing for, whether we want to admit it or not, is where the Father's love is. Home is where the Father's love is. Do you remember the German word we've been working with this series? Zainzucht. Any of you used it in everyday conversation the last few weeks? You, you should. You know, when you come across that thing 
that you thought was going to be so satisfying and it left you hanging. You say, I've been zinzit. The German phrase means a longing or a yearning that everything in this world, that nothing in this world can really quite quench. It's the feeling that life in itself is incomplete and unfinished, imperfect. It's the longing for a far-off country that yet somehow you call home. St. Augustine, after his years of sinful living, wrote, You have made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. C.S. Lewis, much later, pulling on, drawing from Augustine, says, this is what we call joy. That the joy of being home comes from knowing the Father's love. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the pursuit of virtue being lived out as a son or a daughter who already is in the family? It's very different, isn't it? This is what Paul says, our New Testament reading in Ephesians 5, as dearly loved children of God, become like Jesus. But what we always hear in church is sort of the opposite. Become like Jesus so that you can be dearly loved children. You know, when my children disobey me, they don't stop becoming my children. When my children don't live the way Holly and I had hoped or have taught or are teaching them to live, we don't say, oh, you are no longer my son. What we say is, because you are my daughter, because you are my son, let's live this way and I'll help you. And That's what God does, not in order to, but since you are. Does that make sense? Not in order to, but since you are. What does it do to suffering? Imagine going through hardship and suffering, believing that you are a son or a daughter of God versus a slave or an orphan. Imagine the Old Testament reading, the familiar psalm, Psalm 23, and when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death and life is unbearably hard. You don't need to come to church with the happy face and says, well, I guess the only way I can be a Christian is to pretend that there is no pain of suffering. No. When you are a son or a daughter, you can say both things. You can say life is hard and God is with me. You can say both things. You can say this is not right. And yet the maker of heaven and earth is with me. And they will, there will be a great Easter day for the whole cosmos. A great Easter day when Jesus says, what has happened to me and that I have been made new will now happen to the whole cosmos. Then all of a sudden, Romans 8 becomes real. That no height, no depth, no angels, no demons, no death, nor life can ever separate you from the love of God. Because you know your identity. You are a child of God. Church, my prayer this morning is more than anything else. Every time we come to the table, you'll think about the God who gave His body to make, to let, whose body is given so that we can be made whole. You'll think about the Lord whose blood was shed and spilled so that we can be forgiven. So that life doesn't become about wrestling through guilt and trying harder or doing better. Nor does it come from sort of feeling like you've got to figure it out on your own. 
life all of a sudden becomes this thing that you say, I belong to the greatest family there is. The God who made the heavens and the earth is the God who came running after me. The God who gave his life so that you don't have to be a slave, but a son and a daughter. You don't have to be an orphan, but a family member. We have all been adopted in. Several of you have experienced the beauty of adoption. Some of you are on the journey to pursue adoption. I really don't know a more beautiful physical sign in the world of the redemptive power of grace than adoption because that is the gospel story. Amen? As we prepare to come to the table this morning, would you just kind of bow your hearts and let the Holy Spirit search you and work in your heart and work in your life? And maybe this is the chance. Again, confession is not the moment where we become moralists and slaves and say, oh God, I'm so sorry. Confession is the moment where we say, God, I'm sorry I've been running away. I'm sorry I've been trying to convince myself to live like a slave in your house. I'm sorry I've been... Confession is the moment where we let God's grace abound to us and say, you are my daughter. You are my son. You are my child. Welcome home.